We talk about the person who abides in God and the person who abides in Christ. And we talked about the idea there uh, previously about a person who continues to live in that sinful lifestyle. We warm back up to about uh, verse 7 here this morning in 1 John 3. It says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Remember last time we talked about the person that he there in verse 7. Uh, the other part of verse 7 is God. So the person who practices righteousness just as he or God is righteous. And so we want to be righteous just like him. Verse 8, he who sins is of the devil. That is, he who continues to live in sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested or revealed that he might destroy the works of the devil. We talked about how Christ came in the world to save, seek and save the lost and to overcome the works of the devil, which is sin and temptation and those types of things. And of course, the, the, the commands and teachings of Christ and of God go right against anything the devil may stand for. Verse 9 says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Again, we talked about the person who is a Christian does not live in sin. That's the idea. They're not, he doesn't ever sin. So he does not live in sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. He cannot continue to live in sin because he is a follower of God. It can't be that he never sins. We mentioned before, does that contradict 1 John chapter 1? Uh, but he does not continue to live in sin. It's not a lifestyle any longer. Verse 10 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or revealed. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. As we talked about again, the person who says they are a Christian does not live in sin. So you cannot live in sin and be of God. He says, Nor is he who does not love his brother. I'm out there, the, the Christian brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This being a part of the same message they have heard from the beginning, the gospel, right? We talked about how that could be a reference. The beginning could be a reference to just the beginning time of the church. Uh, this is a message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then picking up in verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, and his brothers righteous. So not as Cain. Now, did Cain really love his brother? It would certainly appear so up until the time of the sacrifices, right? You would believe brothers love one another. Of course, we understand brothers, especially talking about blood brothers, just like blood sisters, they don't always get along. But in verse 12, it's being referenced here as the sacrifice was made by Cain and Abel. We know we go back to Genesis, Abel's was accepted, Cain's was not, and that changed Cain's attitude and really his outlook and everything. He kind of threw a crazy little fit and goes on the rampage is what happens. But anyway, verse 12 says, Not, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother, because his love for his brother really disappeared, the moment that his own sacrifice was not accepted by God, he stopped loving his brother because we know that because he began to really hate his brother, to be really jealous of him. And why did he murder him here in verse 12? Because his works were evil, that's a reference to Cain's works, and his brothers, Abel's, were righteous. 
Now, this is a false love because Cain's love for his brother changed the moment he was rejected by his, his sacrifice was rejected by God. Now, if someone loved his brother and their sacrifice was rejected by God, should that change their love for their brother? It shouldn't really. When Cain's sacrifice was rejected by God, it should not affect his relationship with Abel. Now, in the perfect world, we like to say, could Cain have gone to his brother Abel and perhaps asked him what he could have done differently? Yes. Could Cain have gone to God? Well, yes. The Bible tells us that the Lord even spoke to Cain and asked him why he was angry. He says, if you do well, we not be accepted. And if you make it correct and make it right, we'll not be accepted. That was a rhetorical question because the answer was yes. And so it's not the same type of love that that disappears when something goes wrong in our own eyes, as we spot here in verse 12 with Cain. A very uh, a love is very short-lived, you might say. Uh, verse 13 says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if, if the world hates you. Verse 13. Now, the thing about that idea, do not marvel, is do not be surprised, do not be shocked. Sometimes we may be caught off guard when, we, when we're talking to someone and we bring up a Bible principle, and they get upset with us, that might shock us a little bit, right? Why are you getting upset? That just sounds just Bible, right? And that's the idea we find here in verse 13, is do not marvel, do not be surprised. Now, he goes on to talk about here, uh, when if the world hates you. Now, the world's going to hate us because, if they do hate us, it's going to be because of our stance for what is right. Because the Bible and the world, we're talking about those who are living in sin, are like oil, oil and water. They don't, they don't go together, do they? No, so the, those two things are not going together. Well, the world and the Bible do not go together because the Bible calls people out of the world, out of darkness, and into the light, which is to the truth, which results in someone obeying the gospel and being added to the body of Christ, right? And so they're completely contradictory, the Bible and the world. And so the Christian... By that sense, it's going to live in a completely different way than the world thinks we should be living. The Bible tells us how we ought to live when it comes to our spouse, when it comes to our children, when it comes to how we interact with others who are around us. The world today has a much different view than what the Bible teaches concerning those things, right? And if you, if you were to ask someone, what does, the, what does the world believe concerning marriage? It'd be a long answer because you have to include everybody's opinion, right? Because it changes. And no one condemns anyone in the world, right? No, 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 because then you're not of the world. And so marriage in the eyes of the world, just that one idea, if the world defined it, what that means, we have all kinds of ideas. Just this last year alone, that has changed for many people, right? But in the Bible, it has remained the same for all time, hasn't it? One man, one woman, till death do you part. That's the idea, right? Now, he says, do not marvel, that you should not be surprised, my brethren. So he's talking to Christians. He says, if the world, he says there, hates you. Now, if I mentioned this before, hate is a very strong world, uh, word, brother, isn't it? It is something that you just cannot stand. You despise it. You want nothing to do with it. Well, that's how the world, in many cases, views Christians, right? Either they're going to target us and take and try to abuse us, or they want nothing at all to do with you. And so that's the idea we have there with hate. And so we shouldn't be surprised 
be caught off guard if the sinful world doesn't like us because of because how we're trying to live, which is according to the Bible. Any comments or questions on that? Now, if you look at verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He does not love his brother, abides in death. Now, he's talking about here in verse 14, the love between brothers and sisters in Christ is what he's talking about. It's different than the love we have for our family. And we probably love our brothers and our sisters and those types of things. But love for the brethren is different because in so many families today, not everyone in a family is necessarily a part of God's family, right? And so the love we have for those who are part of God's family, that is the church, is only different than those our love we have for our own brothers and sisters who are not members of God's family. Think about it this way. Do you have members in your family who, if you bring up Bible things, it doesn't go very well? See, if you have member, if you have bring up Bible things to some of these members of the family of God, should there in reality be any problems? No. You should be able to talk about whatever you want to talk about. But when we talk about sometimes Bible things with members of our family who are not members of the Lord's church or God's family, it doesn't always go that way. And so that's why I say that our family, our spiritual family, our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, in many instances, is stronger than that what we have with our own family because we can talk about spiritual things with members of the church that we bring up with members of our own family who are not members of the church. We can't really talk about them in the sense that they won't listen. There's, I don't want to hear that, those type of things. And so our relationship is a lot different with members of the church than it is sometimes with members of the family. Now, if we're lucky, they go hand in hand, <laughs> right? You can talk, you have members of your own family, members of the church. That's, you know, you might call it a double blessing or something along that line, but because you can talk about those types of things. But that's not always the case. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. That is, we have passed from living like the world to life, that is, living with Christ, because what? Because we love the brethren. Now, we talked about this before. Love the brethren doesn't mean you always get along. It doesn't mean you don't have differences of opinion, but love the brethren means you all have the same common, you have many common things together. That is, you want to follow God, you want to follow the Word, you want to get to heaven together, and take as many people as you can with you. Those are some very common things. Now, don't confuse that with what some people call core beliefs, but members of the church can have disagreements and still love one another, right? Well, yes, we can. We're going to have to do that. But we should still love one another. Now look at verse 15. Excuse me, just look at the latter part of verse 14, rather. He who does not love his brother abides in death, which means if we don't love our brethren, can we really say that we're living like God would want us to live, that we really are living as a Christian? Abides in death means you have, you're have you putting yourself at risk of spiritual death. That's what he's talking about. You can't say you're a Christian, logically, and not love the brethren. You may not like everything about them, but we are to love the brethren. Look at verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, he's talking about the person who hates his brother in Christ. He says this is, he compares it here to a murderer. 
Now that's a pretty strong uh, comparison. We expect the world to hate, but we should not expect one another, let's say Christians, to hate one another. If you were traveling to on, on vacation, and you step inside a church building, and you sit down, and, and you notice people are just bickering back and forth, back and forth. Would you want to stay there? I wouldn't. I think I'm in the wrong place. What's going on? Why is everybody arguing with one another? And that's really the idea we find here in verse 15, is that we, we look like the world and we hate one another. Because the world has no problem disagreeing with one another while being right at the same time, right? But brethren should not be those who are uh, who are not, we should be those who are not acting like the world. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So we cannot hate our brethren and expect to have heaven as our home. That's the idea there in verse 15. And so that's a strong reminder for us. And that really helps us think about how should we treat one another. We may have disagreements. But we better not allow that to turn to hate. We may have differences of opinion, but it turns to hate. And well, really, first it turns to bitterness, and then it turns to hate. There's always a process. But we have hate for one another. Heaven's going to be beyond our reach. Looking at verse 16. He says here, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. He being a reference to Christ, right? Christ laid down his life for us, us being a reference to the Christian, really for all the world, but the Christian gets to take advantage of it. Those who fail to come to Christ, they don't get to take advantage of that. And we also have to lay down our lives for the brethren. Are there times in which we need to make sacrifices for one another? Yeah. Maybe it's of time. Maybe it's of our skills to help someone who is in need. Maybe it's of our material things. Maybe it's of monetary things. Whatever it is, there's things that we we need to be willing to sacrifice for others. And when I think about when I think about verse 15, how we sacrifice things, to me, the hardest thing to get someone to sacrifice is their time. Because I think it's real easy sometimes to throw money at a problem or throw money to try to fix something, or throw material goods at a situation, when if we just use a little bit of our time, it, we won't have to do those types of things. And so I think, at least in my mind, that time is the hardest thing to get people to give up. Because time, well, our schedules get busy with all kinds of things, and sometimes our time, we think, well, I have the time for that. I always think about what would the apostles, what happened to the apostles, for instance, ever said, I don't have time to go down there and preach down there. What would happen? People probably literally died in their sins, possibly, right? What if Christ had said that? I don't have time to go over there to probably these hard-headed Pharisees or Sadducees, pick a name, right? They're going to listen anyway, so I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't have time to deal with them. People probably would die in their sins. In the church today, the same way, if we are willing to sacrifice our time, sometimes... It may not be that someone's going to die in their sins. We may allow someone to become discouraged. And in time, they may just walk away. And so we have to make sure we're willing to make sacrifices for one another. He uses here the idea of laying down our lives for the brethren, which means 
but willing to do anything to help one another out. And we, we need to be willing to do that as well. Sometimes we're willing to receive, but we're not willing to give. And we need to make sure we're those who are givers of our time as well. Verse 17. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, you think about this for a second. World's goods is very much what I think of as an umbrella term, right? What I mean by that, it could mean money. It could mean clothing, it could mean food, it could mean shelter, it could mean vehicles, and blah, blah, blah. The list goes on and on and on. So basically the idea is someone who has plenty of what they need, the world's goods, he says, and sees his brother. Now notice, it's not a stranger. It's not some worldly person who is in sin. He says, sees his brother in need. Who's the brother in verse 17? Who's the brother? It's a Christian, right? Now, brothers, many times, we understand just because we see brother doesn't mean he's, not, he's saying that we can't help a sister. That's not what he's talking about. Many times, these are just used in a very generic way in the sense that brother or sister, we understand it both ways, obviously. But he says, whoever sees his brother, and I notice he says, in need, and shuts up his heart from him. What is he doing? Is that a person that's willing and ready to help? Do you remember one of the commands that Christ gave in the, in the Gospel of Matthew especially? He gives instructions towards uh, the rich. And, and Paul also gives instructions towards the rich as well. I believe they're in 1 Timothy. Talking about how there should be those who are willing to share, ready to give, willing to share those types of things. But in verse 17, I don't think he's necessarily talking about someone who is wealthy, not helping their brother in need. It's just someone who has what they need. They see someone else in need in verse 17, and they shut up their heart from him. And he says, he asks the question in verse 17, how does the love of God abide in him? Now that's a strong question, isn't it? I mean, that's, yes, we tell someone today who's in the church, out of church, sometimes I don't think it really matters. How can you say you love God if you have, if you have you know, plenty, you see someone over here in need, you're willing to help them. You say you love God? That's really the idea we found there in verse 6, 17, isn't it? How does the love of God abide in him? How many times did, the, did Christ help those in need? Now, people would say, well, that's the Son of God. Of course he did. Well, you know, the word Christian means Christ-like, doesn't it? Which means we're to be like him. Well, Christ helped people in need constantly. Did he have everything he needed on this earth? Well, yeah. 4,000, 5,000 people in need of food. What happened? Does he tell them to go away? I'm really tired right now. No, he feeds them all. 4,000, then again, 5,000, right? Those who are sick, those who are dying, those who have, in Lazarus' case, died, and help those people who are in need. Now, Lazarus wasn't in need, but his sisters were because they were hurting. But he did not shut up his heart, right? The apostles were to used their gift of the Holy Spirit freely. They were not to be someone who said, well, I'm not doing that because I don't want to or whatever selfish reason. That's not what they're supposed to do. Remember, they were to preach the word of God and confirm it by the accompanying signs, right? And so they did not shut up their heart either. So if you look at verse 17, how can we say we love God if we shut up our hearts to our, now notice, our brethren, which would mean our own. It's hard to say you love God and tell someone, 
Well, you're just out of luck. Verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, we understand we are to preach the truth in love. We are to know the word of God, those types of things. But what is he saying in verse 18? Let us not love in word or in tongue. What does that mean? Is it easy to say things, but different to do things? And we can tell someone, hey, I'll be there at 5 o'clock to help you load up, whatever it is. It's easy to say that. It's different to be there and show up and start doing the grunt work. But that's the hard part, right? And so we think about verse 18. He says, let us not love in word or in deed. We have to be people who don't just say things, but people that do things, right? But in deed... That is an action and in truth. So we don't just say, say, uh, say things. We don't just, he says, let's not love in word or in tongue. I think there's not just, it's not only in word or in tongue, but by our actions. We hear sometimes a phrase, actions speak louder than words. That seems to be the idea here in verse 18. We speak the truth. We say, we say we'll help someone. And what we do, we show up and we help someone. By deed, by action, and in truth. By what we do and by what we say. Verse 19 says, And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before Him. Now, he says, By this we know that we are of the truth. By what is he talking about? What is he, by this, a reference to? Keep on all the things we've mentioned up to this point. It's about the love we show for one another. It's about the things we don't, not just the things we say, but also the things we do. It's about the sacrifices we make for others to help those who are in need. And that's exactly what he's talking about. We can add more to that, but what we've seen, that's what he seems to be leading up to. Verse 19, and, and by this, by not just loving in word or in, in tongue, but by in deed and in truth. He says, we know that we are, we are of the truth. That is, we are doing what is right. We are following the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. We can be assured that we are pleasing to God when we're doing these types of things. Now, we understand doing these things is not alone does not mean we get to go to heaven. We understand we have to obey the gospel. We have to be one of the brethren, right? And then we want to be those who are people of action. And he says in verse 19, and shall assure our hearts before him. Now before him is a reference to judgment. So who's the him? It could be a reference to God. You could say, you know, assure our hearts before God in the sense that God sees everything we're doing. That wouldn't be incorrect. But the judgment, the him could be a reference to Christ, who is our judge. What does that assure our hearts mean? If you're assured of something, do you have any questions about it? No. And so we can have, we can be without question. We can live without question before God when we're doing the things we've just talked about. Helping our brothers in need. Being people of not just a word, but of action. And not hating one another, but loving one another. He says, and by this, he says, we know that we are of the truth. We are doing what is commanded by God and shall assure our hearts before him. We can be assured that we are living away <clears throat> and doing things before God 
that are pleasing to him. Now, if you are assured, if your hearts are assured before him, do you fear the judgment? No, you don't you don't fear the judgment, right? You're not afraid of it because if your hearts are assured, you're saying, I know I'm doing what is right because this is what the Bible says I should be doing. I'm doing this, I've obeyed the gospel, I'm doing these things. We understand, of course, also, as we saw back in First John 1, chapter 1, that we repent of our sins when we fail. All those things build up to depart, build up to us being assured of before God that we are what? Right in His sight that we're doing the truth and that our hearts can have that assurance. I think about the idea of being able to go home and go to sleep at night and not be, be able, not having to worry about the judgment day because we know we're following the Bible as teaching. They worry about the judgment day. Do you get much sleep? I wouldn't. Because first of all, we don't know when Christ is coming back, which means we don't know when the judgment day is coming. If you worry about the judgment day, you're probably not going to sleep very well. You're going to have that assurance. But if we're doing what the Word of God tells us we should be doing, we will have that assurance. Look at verse 20. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, we have to make sure we keep this in context. What's he talking about? If our heart condemns us, sometimes we worry about things. We think, well, am I doing enough? All you have to do is go back to the Bible. Am I doing what is right? Go back to the Bible. Sometimes I think we get worried and we say, well, shall I be doing more? Could I be doing more? Shall I be doing this? Go back to the Bible. I'll admit, when someone asks me sometimes those types of questions, should I be doing more? I get a little bit annoyed. I'll tell them the same answer every time. Go back to the Bible and look what the Bible says you should be doing. Obeying his word, repeating when you fail, helping your brother in need, not hating one another, and being okay with the fact that the world may just hate you because you're our father of God. I mean, that's a very big nutshell, but that's what we should be doing, right? Where if our heart condemns us, God is in our heart and knows all things. In spite of assurance and because of our weakness and our realization of our own Mess of imperfections, doubt sometimes will circulate our minds at times, which means we'll allow ourselves to be in doubt. If I'm honest, I think sometimes doubt is a very big tool of the devil. He wants you to doubt your spiritual condition. He wants you to doubt, in honesty, everything. There's a difference between questioning and everything and doubting everything. Questioning is you're in search of the truth. Doubting is you're not sure of it. Verse 20, if we, our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. We have the assurance and confidence, as we saw back in verse 19, when we do what is right, and if you're doing God's word, you should know it. You should know you're doing it. If you see something the Bible tells you you should be doing, and you're not doing it, if you're honest, you'll know it. Now, sometimes we try to justify, well, you know, that's not really that important, or I really can't do that, and that's different. That's a whole different thing. But if we see what the Bible tells us we should be doing, and we say, well, I'll do that. And you think if at times you're doing that, that's how we think about those things, right? We're not trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to make sure that we are following God's Word. He says in verse 20, and knows all things. Does God know everything that we're doing? Yes. He knows all things. But when we're following God's Word, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be clouded with doubt. That's a big part of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, in my opinion, is Removing doubt from your mind. Because the world, the world wants you to doubt. The world wants to come up to you and say, well, what about this? What about this? Shouldn't you be doing this or this? 
Because we're honest, does the world has does the world have realistic expectations of Christians? No. Right? In the world's opinion, shouldn't a Christian have a halo and do no wrong ever? Shouldn't the Christian give up everything and live as a poor person who barely can survive in order to help others? And that's really not what the Bible teaches. We provide for our own, which means we provide for our own, we provide for others. The Bible doesn't always teach or agree with everything the world thinks the Christian should be doing. Then many times people come to our church building wanting help who would be better off helping themselves. They have the action, the words, well, this is what you should be doing. I love asking sometimes, can you tell me Bible verse that says I should do what you're asking me to do? That should help someone who is perfectly capable of helping themselves. The Bible also says if you will not, if the person will not eat, you know, neither will not work, neither will he eat. Those types of things as well. But the world has unrealistic expectations of Christians, whereas the Bible does not require more of us and what we can do. And when we think about loving our brethren, helping those in need, following God's word, being okay with being despised by the world, those are things that are not outlandish. Those are things that we should be doing. And if we're honest, many of us are probably already doing those things already. If we're not, we can certainly start doing those things. Verse 21 says, Beloved, our heart does not condemn us. We have confidence toward God. Now, he's not saying that your heart is the ultimate judge. But if we know how we are living before God, we look at God's word and say, I can say, honestly, I'm doing that, or I should work on that. Then our heart does not condemn us in the sense that we are doing what is right. We have confidence toward God, verse 21. Again, this is not the idea that our heart is our supreme judge, because it's not. We have to we open our Bibles up and we look and see what God requires of us, and we ask ourselves honestly, am I meeting and doing those things that God requires of us? Verse 22, it says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments. And do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, you think about verse 22 there. It says, Where we ask, we receive from him. Would the Christian logically ask for things that would go against God's will? No. Would we ask for things that would be sinful? No. And so that's when we, when we look at verse 22 again and put it in context. He's not saying you can literally ask for whatever you want. You know, praying to God is not like a genie, is it? You rub the lamp and get whatever you want. That's not what we're talking about. Whatever you ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. And because we keep his commandments, what we ask from him is going to be in accordance to God's will. It's not going to be sinful. It's not going to be selfish. So sometimes we may, we may think, you know, please, Lord, help me get this job and fight for my family. Well, that sounds selfish. Well, no, it's not. Nothing wrong with that. But we don't pray for things that would be selfish or materialistic, and the list goes on and on and on. Because we keep his commandments, verse 22, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 22, at least in my mind, helps us understand more of those verses that talks about the heart condemning us and those types of things. Because when we follow God's commands, and we're doing what is right. He says things are pleasing. I notice in his sight, we know that God's going to hear. He's going to reply to our prayers in a way that's fit for him and for us. 
Verse 23, and this, is a, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandments. Now we understand here in verse 23, this is not the complete realm of everything we should be doing, but it's very much a, a broad view of what we should be doing, right? That we should believe on, his, on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, that's a reference to us obeying the gospel. And love one another, that goes back to not hating our brethren, as he gave us commandment, what's going to happen? We'll be pleasing his sight. We'll be pleasing to God. We can rest assured we are doing what is good and pleasing in his sight. Looking at verse 24, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom, whom he has given us. Now he who keeps his commandments is a reference, that he is a reference to the Christian, or the person who, who obeys the gospel and can, begins to keep his commandments, abides in him. So we are in Christ uh, so long as we are keeping his commandments, right? Verse 24. And he in him. And so if we are abiding in Christ so long as we are keeping his commandments, doesn't it also mean that when we stop keeping his commandments that we're no longer in Christ? I mean, can you be disobedient to God's commands and then still be in Christ? No. We can say that. We can say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I just don't know. I don't ever do what the Bible says. That's a Christian. No, that doesn't work. He who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him, which means we dwell in Christ and Christ dwells in us. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now some say the Spirit is really a reference to the attitude, the, the, uh, the demeanor of the Christian, that is how we act, or right? those types of things. But the Spirit, he says, by the Spirit which whom he has given us, how does the Spirit dwell in a Christian today? Through the Word. If you go back and look in the New Testament, you look in the time of the Apostles, when the Holy Spirit dwelled in someone in a miraculous way. They had gifts that accompanied it, right? The apostles had numerous things they could do. Those whom they laid hands on had, had specific gifts they could do when it's miraculous. Now, us today, we understand that only apostles could lay their hands on someone and have that gift passed on. And so when the apostles died, when those who laid hands on died, that ended, right? By logical deduction there, the miraculous ended. As so we're talking about the Holy Spirit was within us, we can't be talking about the miraculous because it'd be literally impossible for that to be, be what we're talking about. Because so it has to be through the written word. And he tells us, and through the written word, what does he do? He reminds us that we should be, how we should be living today. He abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And he gives us that Spirit today through the written word. He, is, the written word has revealed how we should be living. How we, how we need to obey the gospel, what we need to do to obey the gospel, and all those things that are part of being a faithful servant of God. Any comments or questions? We have just about six or seven minutes left. Okay, let's look at chapter 4 of 1 John. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's a lot said in that one verse. 
do not believe every spirit. Now, a spirit is not literally a spirit like we think about a ghost or something. That is, don't believe every person is what he's talking about. Do not believe every spirit. But now notice this, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. <clears throat> test the spirits, whether they are of God. That indicates, as you're going to say here in a moment, that there are some who are not teaching correctly. There are some who are not preaching correctly. When we say correctly, we mean according to God's word. But test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, there's some very simple ways in which we can test the Spirit. One way is that we can listen when people talk. Another way, I think, really, I think there's more than one way we should be doing that, because sometimes when people talk, they pick their topics accordingly. <laughs> that is, anybody can sound faithful to God when talking about the family, but it may not sound faithful to God when talking about salvation, or marriage and divorce, and those types of things. And so what do we do? We ask questions to people. Maybe in person, maybe in writing, but we have we have a concern. Definitely, we have a concern. We ask questions. This congregation does, and we should be glad that we do so because sometimes it has really sheltered us from some things. Now, if we look at verse one, he says, "Do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit. Don't be convinced, right? That is, we have to. Now, we're not talking about going in and just." You know, putting someone in a torture device and telling them to saying, tell us what you believe. We're talking about asking questions. Asking questions and listening. Test the spirits whether they are of God, which means whether they are faithful, loyal to God. It's not about hearing the, the answers we think are correct. It's hearing the answers the Bible says are correct. Because sometimes we're expecting an answer. When we hear someone say something, we say, you know what? That's right. <laughs> they may have worded it differently than how we would word it, but that's right. And so it's the answer that is found in God's word. He says, and he says, why here in verse one? Because now notice how many false prophets does he say have gone out into the world? Many, many. Now sometimes we think false prophets. We automatically turn to to denominations. We think, well, he's talking about denominations. Yes, we're not going to buy them in. Well, I hope not. But in many cases, it's, it's those who are what we call sometimes so-called brethren, right? Those who claim to be a member of the church, claim to be a, a faithful teacher or preacher, and you get to talking with them, and things come out that you think, oh, hang on a second. <laughs> Did you just mean what you just said? And so we have to be on guard against that. But when we test those spirits and, and when we ask them questions, those types of things, and we find Bible answers coming from them, Unless their teaching changes, we should be assured of that. You know, we want to make sure, though, that we are, especially when we're talking about having someone come and speak or if we're, if we're going to a gospel meeting sometimes, our own, uh, sometimes we as individuals may feel like we need to ask someone some questions if we, if we are not certain of that individual. Uh, verse 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. By what? By testing the spirits, back in verse 1. Now, he talks about here that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. The reason he brings this up here in verse 2 is because what we call the, uh, uh, the Gnostics denied that Christ came in the flesh. They didn't believe he came in the flesh. And so when, when he came in, in to the earth, they, that's one of the reasons they denied him. Uh, and so he says, this would 
by him saying this, this would say that the Gnostics are what? That they are false prophets. <laughs> they deny that Christ came in the flesh. Uh, and we know as we look at prophecy and look at prophecy fulfilled in the gospel accounts, Christ did indeed come in the flesh. And so, but he, he here in verse 2, by referencing this, referencing uh, the Gnostics who believe that Christ did not come in the flesh. Uh, now, is this really the only question you have to ask people today when you're talking about trying to find someone who is loyal to the truth? No, we have to go beyond that because in reality, the nations would say that, right? The nations would say, well, Christ is the Son of God. And so we have to ask some, very, some questions that are unique to what the Bible teaches, not what everyone would necessarily believe. Because if you ask someone, is Christ the Son of God? And they say yes, and they say, okay, you're good to go. Well, that opens up floodgates for everybody, doesn't it? And so we have to ask some other questions, especially concerning things like salvation and worship and, and marriage and those types of things as well. Verse 3 says, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, Jesus Christ has come, has come in the flesh is not of God. Again, the Gnostics do not believe that, so they are not of God is what he's saying. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, that is someone who is against Christ, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now, he says these individuals are not of Christ because they don't believe that Christ came in the flesh, and so they're not of God. He says this is the spirit, you might say this is the attitude or the teaching of the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is just anyone who's against Christ. We've talked about this before. Now, again, there are some who teach that there's one supreme Antichrist coming in the future, but interesting enough in verse 3, what does he say? Which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So it can't be future tense if he's already there. Again, it's not a one singular person, but it's anyone who speaks against Christ. Okay, we're going to stop there this morning.